before the court. Welcome to all of our listeners to a very special interview today. My name is Dan. I'm the Director of Social Justice and Equity here for the Deakin Law Student Society. And I'm joined by Liv, who's our 2021 Queer Officer. Our guest today needs no introduction. We are joined by former High Court Justice, the Honourable Michael Kirby. How are you going today, Michael? Good. Yes, very well. So great to meet you. Thank you for, for joining us this morning and, and giving us a little bit of your time. We do have Ida Hobbit coming up next week. So we thought we might have a bit of a discussion today centering that and, and the development of, uh, I guess, the relationship between the queer community and the legal profession in Australia and across the globe. Um, for those who don't know, Ida Hobbit is a day of global awareness celebrated each year on the 17th of May and is the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Intersexism and Transphobia, or more broadly, the International Day Against LGBTQIA plus discrimination. Michael, how important is it for the queer community to have a day like this where we can celebrate our triumphs and mark the ongoing struggles that we face in our everyday lives? Well, I think it is important and useful to have uh, particular days to reflect on um, particular events that are important to us uh, socially, legally, constitutionally, uh, and um, uh, if it means that we have a holiday and have a day off, then it's even better. But <laughs> even if we don't have that, if we have the opportunity to have uh, discussions like we're having now, then that really makes sure that at least once a year on the particular day, uh, you focus on an issue that is of importance uh, to our community and to the world. Um, other special days, at least as far as I'm concerned, are days concerning uh, nuclear weapons and the need for uh, a proper response to uh, the banning of nuclear weapons uh, and issues such as animal welfare uh, and uh, education. Uh, all of these are important issues and having a special day seems a bit um, nominal uh, in that every day should be a day against uh, homophobia, transphobia, etc. But having the special day means we focus and that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think as you said, just the, the beginning of discussions around issues like that and and like you said, a number of issues as well across the globe are really important to, to at least have that, that one day and hopefully get that sparking into to multiple days and, and an ongoing conversation. Yes, well, uh, we've established, I think, beyond reasonable doubt that <laughs> it's a good thing that we're here. It's a good thing we have this day. It doesn't exist in many countries of the world. Uh, Idaho Day, as it originally was, was founded in uh, 1990 in France, uh, and uh, it has expanded to extend to a wider range of issues beyond just homophobia, uh, into transphobia and intersexism, etc. cetera. Um, but um, uh, over the years, it's expanded to a number of countries, but in some countries, we must uh, keep in mind, um, it is 
a source of violence, uh, not just discrimination, but actual violence, even deadly violence, um, if uh, you stand up uh, for LGBTIQ rights. And that is true in countries like Iran uh, and to some extent in other countries like Bangladesh. Uh, and only last week, new laws were introduced into the legislature in Uganda, in uh, Africa, uh, which were designed to uh, reintroduce criminal punishments uh, against people simply for being queer. And uh, the way in which that can be responded to is by uh, brothers and sisters around the world uh, and straight allies speaking up against this form of ignorance and unscientific behaviour. Yeah, that's, um, wow, that's really concerning. I think that's something you, I just learnt as well from you saying that. Um, and I personally really liked how you said every day should ultimately be a day against discrimination um, on LGBTQA plus individuals in the community. And I think that the idea of Ida Hobby is to create discussions about struggles that, you know, the community has faced, which I think help people feel like they're really less alone in their journeys. And so, um, personally, how have you struggled with discrimination throughout your career? I mean, did you? And if so, how did you kind of overcome that? Uh, just before we leave Ida Hobbit Day, uh, I think it's reasonable for us to ask, well, what is our government? What are our governments doing on this day? Um, I don't know. It may be that they're going to have um, a rainbow flag over Parliament House in Canberra, but somehow I don't think so. Uh, it may be that they'll have um, uh, days of reflection and opportunities for learned uh, speeches in Parliament House in Melbourne and in Sydney uh, for the state parliaments, but I haven't heard of them, and I think I would have heard if that had been done. Uh, it takes an initiative. And one consequence of having this podcast is I'm going to write immediately to some members of parliament in New South Wales asking, well, what are you doing for Ida Hobbit Day? Uh, in the past, I've sometimes gone to schools that I've been associated with. Uh, I'm a strong supporter of public education and I've gone back to my own high school, Fort Street High School the oldest uh, continuous public school in the nation uh, to speak to the whole assembly. And last week in Sydney, I went to Normanhurst Boys High School, which is a selective school. And it's the eighth uh, strongest uh, school in the state of New South Wales. Of the top 10 secondary schools in New South Wales, nine of them are public schools. And uh, I went to Normanhurst and spoke to the whole school assembly. And one student sent me an, an email last night in which he said, you kept my attention for the whole 10 <laughs> minutes of your speech. And that is remarkable and indeed astonishing. And uh, so 
I hope that I can do the same in this discussion today. But it's not good enough to have a, a day, either hot day. It's not good enough to have a little speech and a conversation. Uh, we've got to ask, well, what, how, how is this percolating into our community? How is this being done for the benefit of the whole uh, community uh, to get the message across? And I don't think all that much is being done about it in Australia, but I may be wrong. Maybe you can report on that. Meantime, um, Olivia's question was, how have I struggled during my uh, professional personal life? Well, to be completely truthful, it wasn't a great big struggle really, because first of all, as I've told you, all my education was in public schools. Now, this is a long while back, but even at that time, I, I'm not conscious of any discrimination at the schools. Uh, mind you, in those days, you were expected to be very, very, very quiet about it. You were expected not ever to mention it under any circumstances. Uh, and in fact, you were expected to be thoroughly ashamed of it and to because you were ashamed of it, to keep it to yourself. That was the deal that was struck uh, in Australia 50 and more years ago. The deal was, we'll leave you alone so long as you pretend. If you pretend that you're straight, uh, then we're not going to harass you and we're not going to give you a hard time. If you step out of line, then uh, we will uh, retaliate. And that was the deal. And so I played along with the deal. And um, therefore I was really left alone completely. And I can't say that at my schools, I have any recollection, uh, maybe one recollection, but not many of people bullying other students because they were gay. Um, we didn't get taught that God was against us. Uh, we had scripture for one hour a week, and that was it. As it happened, I used to go to church, to the Anglican church, and I can't remember my minister at the church ever rabbiting on about gays and how uh, they were an abomination. Never. So I had a pretty easy run. Um, but um, when I came to Law 1 after my arts course at the University of Sydney, uh, I was taught the uh, Crimes Act of New South Wales, and that included provisions uh, for the unnatural offences, as they were called, and those offences were taught to us by uh, our lecturer in criminal law. And I remember at the time uh, that I colored, I, I began to uh, blush because I thought, I wonder if any of uh, the rest of the class knows about me, knows about my big dark secret. So that's how it was. And it, was, uh, it wasn't really harassment but it was just a part of yourself that you had to keep strictly to yourself. And that meant 
not telling your parents, not telling your siblings, not telling your grandparents. And uh, that was an element of deceitfulness that wasn't very nice, but it wasn't a matter of life and death. Uh, you would see the stories in the newspapers of sometimes leading citizens or famous visitors uh, who were arrested uh, on the grounds of uh, attempting to make a sexual contact. But there weren't many uh, such matters that came to my attention. And I just got on with my life and I became a student politician. And that gave me plenty to do with lots of uh, activities, but never in those uh, far off days, activities relating to Ida Hobbit, never heard of that, or homophobia, never heard of that, or uh, dealing with transgender people, well, we certainly never heard of that. And therefore, all of these things were in the deal. Don't mention it and pretend. And if you do that, you'll get left alone. Well, that's over now. And we're now living in a world, uh, at least in a country, where people should feel able to be truthful about this aspect of their lives. Yeah, I really like um, that discussion you just had. And I think also it's important to note it's you know, it's still extremely hurtful to keep something like that hidden and to feel as though you can't be truthful about those kind of things and to share that. I mean, you know, that that can be seen as equally hurtful and impactful on someone as getting, you know, verbally harassed or bullied um, outwardly. So that's an interesting um, point to kind of bring up and, and the way that you discussed how there was a deal kind of in Australia, that that's just how it went. Um, and it is good that now more so people are able to come out and be true to not only themselves, but everyone and freely express themselves as they should. Um, and do you specifically have any advice, you know, for queer law students or legal professionals who may be facing discrimination today in their workplace or at their school? Um, and how can they um, persevere to succeed in their careers in spite of that? Well, my openness about this um, really began in the 1980s during the HIV AIDS epidemic, because I became involved both nationally in Australia and subsequently internationally in the World Health Organization uh, with activities designed to face up to that pandemic. And many of the lessons that we learned in the HIV pandemic are still relevant for the way in which we are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, most especially being upfront, being honest, being uh, able to discuss issues, having the politicians and the health officials discussing issues on television virtually every night. All of that was something we learned during the AIDS pandemic. And one of the big lessons I learned at that time, both in Australia and in my work on the Global Commission on AIDS of the World Health Organization, uh, was how important it was in combating the spread of the virus to um, bring messages to people who were in the front line. And in the case of HIV, because 
uh, it, uh, the virus was passed by body fluids. And because that involved the passing of the virus by uh, sexual activity, uh, by drug, injecting drug use uh, through sex workers uh, and in confined uh, establishments like prisons or detention centers, um, that meant reaching out to some groups in society who had basically been hidden to some extent. Uh, and in that respect, uh, but only in that respect, the HIV pandemic had um, a sort of silver lining. Uh, and that meant that I became and my, my partner Johan became much more open about uh, the issue. Uh, Johan became an Ankali. I don't think you have Ankalis in Victoria, but uh, the Ankali um, organization in, uh, in New South Wales is like um, buddies uh, and half of them are straight and half of them are gay. And uh, they would be friends and supporters of people living with HIV. And so Johan did that and he had a series of clients and he would give his spare time when uh, at the end of the work day to uh, help with um, uh, activities like um, uh, cleaning the house, cleaning the toilets uh, and um, talking to people who were living with HIV because a lot of them were, were very isolated because they, they both had HIV and many of them were gay, gay men. And so this was a very, very hard time. And we lost uh, 12 quite close friends to HIV. People of your age don't really understand or know uh, how devastating the HIV pandemic was for gay people. And in a sense, that made us feel that this deal that we'd struck where we were pretending and being silent was really first of all not really not very relevant or not very sensible in the circumstances of HIV but also it was pathetic in the situation where millions of people in the world were dying to have this little deal that you were being secretive and not telling your parents so um, all of that rather strengthened uh, our resolve to be more open about, and a lot of gay people at that time became open. I'm not very fond of that American expression came out, came out of the closet. First of all, we don't call it a closet, but uh, anyway, you know what I mean. And we didn't, we became much more um, visible in activities like the Gay Businessmen's Association. Even that name is a bit old fashioned, but it was the sort of uh, activity that was beginning to emerge. Um, and at one stage, Johan said to me, don't you think it, it's time that we should be open about our sexuality, completely, absolutely, totally open. Now, Johan is from the Netherlands. He grew up in the Netherlands under the German occupation uh, during the war. And uh, the culture of the Netherlands is 
very similar to, but a bit different from Anglo-Saxon culture. He thinks, and I, I was terribly shocked when I first heard this, he thinks we are very, very polite, but very, very hypocritical. We are very good at secrecy and deals and stabbing each other in the back. Um, now, I, I didn't really think that, but anyway, that's what he said. And I said, don't you think I, we should continue to not press this issue until after I've left the judiciary? And uh, I can remember when I said that, it was in our um, kitchen uh, in Rose Bay in Sydney, and he said, no, we've got to take a step now and we've got to be open about it. And so um, I always do as I'm told by my partner, life is easier that way. And so we became much more open about it, but it basically, <clears throat> it had been disclosed during the AIDS epidemic because we were just going to so many functions to do with the AIDS epidemic. And that was like code language about our sexuality. And as I look back on it, um, of the justices of the high court, uh, most of them were quite comfortable, perfectly comfortable. Two of them were not, um, but we just went on our way and they went on their way. And that's how it is in society. And actually when the survey took place about marriage equality, it was about three in 10 are not and seven in 10 are quite comfortable. Um, so I think what has to happen in um, the case of younger LGBT people is they have to think of their own lives. They have to think of their own human dignity. Uh, they have to think uh, of uh, the fact that life's journey is relatively brief. And if you spend your whole life hiding under a toadstool, it's not really a very nice place to be. And it's much better to be open and honest. And especially with your family, I mean, it's an awful thing to expect people to be deceitful and pretending to their family. And therefore, it's a good thing for people to be open and honest. Now, I can say this now, having not been open and honest for the first 50 years of my life. But um, uh, I think things have got better in the last 20 or 30 years since Idaho, Idaho Hobbit Day was established in 1990. I think things have definitely got better. And nowadays, uh, most of the big legal firms and certainly most of the members of the bar and of the judiciary are perfectly comfortable with the fact that a certain percentage of people are LGBTIQ and um, if you've got a problem, you've just got to have a lie down and a Bex or, or an aspirin and get over it uh, because it's not going to change, it's going to go on. If you're a member of a religious minority, I think that presents a sometimes quite a difficult problem. I think, for example, of P 
people who are um, strict evangelical Christians or some orthodox conservative Roman Catholic citizens or even in Sydney, though less so in Melbourne, Anglicans. I mean, uh, if you're in that category, it's going to be a bit difficult. But you, you've just basically got to be yourself. And I think young people are probably doing that anyway, despite whatever I say about the matter. Uh, and they know that there are LGBT people everywhere in the legal profession. Seems to be something about the law that attracts LGBT people. Maybe it's the fact that lawyers have to pretend in their lives. They have to pretend they've got to get their mind around someone else's problem and at least understand it, even if they don't empathise with it. They've got to understand it fully and they've got to therefore explain the position of other people by getting into the minds of other people. And I don't know if that's the reason, but I can tell you there are quite a lot of LGBTIQ people in the law and many of them are very supportive of uh, young people because they know of the struggle and many straight lawyers are supportive because they have a sense of fairness and justice and therefore um, it's definitely got better and it will continue to get better and young lawyers and law students have a duty to contribute to this improvement. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's such an interesting discussion you had as well about uh, Johan's work with, with the AIDS crisis. And, and I think that that really reflects the sense of community that's so important with um, queer law students and queer individuals across the globe. Uh, and I guess the theme of Ida Hobbit in 2020 is together resisting, supporting and healing as well, which also sort of centres that sense of community and, and the struggles that the queer community and many other communities faced in 2020. Uh, what importance does the idea of community have for queer people in Australia across the globe um, and in the legal professional uh, legal profession more specifically? Yes, I think uh, the queer community is important to uh, young queer lawyers. And, uh, but the bottom line is we are all individuals. Uh, when we go to bed and we lie on our pillow, where we have often when we were younger cried because of our understanding that suddenly we've come to an appreciation that we are uh, queer and we're not going to change and we might disappoint our parents and we love our parents and love our siblings and so on. All of this is a journey which at least at the moment and for centuries, millennia, is a painful journey for many. And it's, it's deadly, a deadly journey in many countries such as uh, countries of the Middle East, countries of some countries of Asia, and some countries uh, in Africa. Uh, so we've got to understand that people go through a very difficult time of discovery. And uh, there are many tears that are shed. And there's no good pretending that everything in the garden is beautiful because it's not. 
and we know enough about our own lives to know that it's a, a painful time of discovery uh, and but eventually the pain is overcome if we can get to the point of uh, honesty and in most cases parents who love their children uh, know in their hearts about their child um, and uh, they sometimes know but don't want to know and it's it's a complicated journey and it differs greatly from one family to another and this is true also of communities uh, sometimes in the broad community at school uh, the community um, in a legal firm uh, the community at the bar um, the community of the judiciary there are going to be people who are hostile to lgbtiq queer people and the way in which i have learned to cope with that is by total professionalism total honesty and um, not uh, ranting and raving and and um, getting physical or angry and but just uh, remembering the research of Alfred Kinsey, remembering the research of so many others who have followed, remembering the writing on uh, evolution by Charles Darwin, remembering chapter four of Origin of Species, where he says, that the key to understanding evolution is not the sameness of human beings, but the variation of human beings. Chapter four is the rule of variation. And that's basically how evolution has worked over the millennia by little differences. And uh, I think in the case of, of queer people, uh, the little difference must have a reason because if it doesn't have a reason, nature would not have persisted with it. And I've often thought the reason is that a certain percentage of people in society um, uh, are not confined to nuclear families. Some, of course, do replicate new. nowadays with the new technology. People can create nuclear families who are gay or, or queer. But um, I think in my own case, um, I, uh, by being uh, queer, I have been able to spend quite a lot of time on human rights not just gay human rights. For goodness sake, if you don't learn from your own experience of human rights, you're not really, you haven't had your eyes open because human rights are issues for Aboriginal people, for women, uh, for people of different skin color, uh, for people of uh, different uh, cultural, 
religious backgrounds, uh, people with disabilities, uh, and so on. So I think I think queerdom, queer personality has a reason. Otherwise, it wouldn't persist in nature. And uh, it's a puzzle to work out what the reason is. But that's the way in which I've tried to work it out in my uh, brain. And um, I think that's the beginning of a PhD thesis, which <laughs> I might write one day. Well, I would definitely read that if you were to put that out. Um, and I really um, like the point you just made there. I think that's a really interesting and unique take on it, which I personally really like. And I also really like how you said, um, kind of reassure that there are actually a lot of lawyers and people in the legal profession that are queer, because I think sometimes as law students, you do forget that and you Feel, find yourself feeling quite alone and you think that you're kind of the only one and it does get overwhelming. So that felt really nice to hear that there are, you know, so many people that are queer in the profession. Um, and, you know, as you said, society has come a really long way in kind of promoting rights, needs and interests of the queer community um, in Australia and across the globe as well, but it hasn't always been that way. So how has it changed since you first begun your career? Yes, well, it it has uh, changed. Keep in mind my um, my exposition on the reason for uh, sexual orientation and gender identity being different. Not everybody would agree with what I've just said, and uh, and certainly I don't think that it can be said that it's an entirely genetic uh, characteristic, because. They've done many, many twin studies. This is a way of finding what is a genetic and what is not a genetic feature. And in the case of twin studies, it has shown that amongst those tw twins who are uh, identical, what we call identical twins, if one twin is gay, uh, then in about 60%, 58%, I think, uh, on many twin studies, the other is gay. So that rather does imply that there is a genetic foundation, but it's not a complete foundation. And it's something else as well as genetic. And But there are, of course, other people who will say, forget about the cause. It's a fact. And don't go raving on about why it happened. It happens and then get over it. But I do think it would be helpful to um, lay people who are not themselves queer if they knew that there's a significant genetic component because hating people for genetic features like their skin color or their gender, well, some people do, the patriarchy do hate people who are women or trans women. Uh, then that's really irrational and it's led to so many uh, wrong acts that I think everybody, I hope everybody now, knows that that has to stop. But likewise with LGBTIQ queer minorities, uh, that has to stop as well. Um, and nowadays, um, my activities are not so much in 
the advancement of queer rights in Australia. That's not because the whole battle is over and the war has been won and we can all go back and celebrate. Um, there are still many issues that remain to be tackled, including in the law, including in the judiciary and including in law firms um, and including in say regional areas of Australia as distinct from in the great big cities. Um, so it's not as if uh, we can uh, rest on our laurels, but especially overseas, which is where I've been mostly involved in this struggle, uh, the problem of the deal uh, and of pretending is still very alive and well in many parts of the world. Fortunately, lawyers have got something to do about this and to say about it, because in most countries of the world, uh, the country has a Bill of Rights in its constitution. And often the Bill of Rights has provisions about equality uh, and about um, uh, privacy and, and so on. And um, important cases, legal cases are brought to challenge the uh, criminal laws and social attitudes against queer people. Um, and uh, there have been a number of very important successes, the most important probably in India, where the Supreme Court of India, in a case called uh, Johar against the Union of India, about two, two and a half years ago, uh, upheld the challenge against Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which had been introduced in colonial times by the British administrators um, and held that that provision was incompatible with the principles of the Indian constitution, uh, which guarantee equality of all citizens. So um, that was a decision taken by the Supreme Court after some great victories in the lower courts which were pioneered by uh, groups of Indian lawyers, mostly straight, but with some gay members, uh, to fight against the inequality in the constitution. And back in the 1990s, alongside Justice Edwin Cameron, uh, a great judge of the South African Constitutional Court, um, I took part in uh, um, uh, what we call the caravan. We went in all parts of India, talking to judges, talking to lawyers, um, and talking to the bar about uh, the inequality of the provisions in section 377 and the story of our own lives. And I think that had a big impact when they heard about this, just as I hope my talk last week to the students at North uh, Normanhurst High School will have an impact on the lives of the young students at that school. I think back on my schooling, if somebody had come along to my school and said, well, I'm queer and this is me and, 
and I get on with my life and I have quite a good life at ups and downs. But uh, in my own case, I've had a, a loving partner for 52 years um, and we got married exactly on the 50th anniversary of the day we met. It was the same day, the same month, uh, and it was at the same hour as we had met 50 years earlier. Um, took a long time to get there, but we ultimately got there. And I think that is pretty hard to argue against. Not everybody has the good luck I've had with my partner, Johan. Uh, and finding somebody is difficult enough without the law and social attitudes being in the way. And that's why we have to try to improve our social attitudes, not just fixing up inequality in the law, but fixing up inequality in social attitudes. And this is where dialogue with religions is very important because I think most people of religion um, are good people and they just don't really understand that a certain percentage of people are gay and to be cruel and unkind to them, deprive them of legal rights and human comforts is really not very spiritual. So um, these are things that, that we have leadership obligations in. And that's why I I'm really pleased that the Deakin University Law Students Society has supported the queer uh, group. And I congratulate um, Daniel and Olivia for taking part in this. It, you could have just gone on being a quiet little mouse, but instead you, have, you are now out and about and you're roaring like lions. And uh, that's a good thing because there are people, especially say if they are of a minority religion who, who really can't do it in their home situation and they need the reassurance. Please don't ever think that what you do is not a good thing and it's not doing some good, even if it just helps one or two or a small number of people uh, who are growing up as Pentecostal Australians or as Orthodox uh, Australians or as Islamic Australians or Sydney Anglican Australians, if they know that there are people out there who look quite rational and don't seem to be really weird um, and have quite good lives uh, and do quite good things professionally, then it's much harder to hate them. That's why what you're doing is really important. And I congratulate you and I support you and I'll always support you. Uh, I wasn't supporting you before my partner told me off, but after that fateful day in the kitchen, uh, we are both supporting uh, the effort of young queer Australians to speak up for uh, the example that they set for other people, because that just makes it easier for other people. 
I didn't really have that in my time. There were no gay judges. There were a few very quietly gay, but very few. Now, almost all the big firms have um, ally networks or queer networks. Uh, and they have special days and sometimes if they coincide with Ida Hobbit Day uh, and they have uh, wonderful cocktail parties and all the partners come along and so on. Sometimes I hear that uh, once the, the little cocktail is over, it's back to normal and nothing much changes. You have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Uh, and giving an example in the leadership of firms is important so that people know this is not going to damage their careers because that's something that lawyers often worry about. Yeah, that's, that's such a resounding point you make about, I guess, the importance of representation for young queer Australians, especially in the legal profession and having people that we can look up to and and the importance that that really plays in their own journeys. I think that's that's such an important point. And I guess the reminder as well about that Joe, the Joha case in India about the real impact that people can have on on the rights of others overseas, but also in Australia here is is again such such an important point and really goes to the reason that a lot of young law students have uh, joined the or are joining the profession. Um, to bring about this sense of justice. Um, and I guess that leads to our last question, Michael, is uh, that the parliaments and courts are tasked with the very difficult job of representing the interests of the broader Australian and global communities. Do you believe that enough is being done to reflect the needs of queer Australians on a broad scale? Um, why or, or why not? And what do you think needs to be changed to promote further equality in society and in the legal profession? I don't think most Australians, including most queer Australians, are very interested in what is happening to uh, LGBT people overseas. I, I don't think they're, they're engaged. I don't think they're all that interested. Johan and I have agreed that in our wills, uh, because you've got to face these things as you get older, uh, we're going to leave uh, some funding to support APCOM. Uh, in Bangkok. Uh, and before COVID came on, I'd been to a number, I'm a patron of APCON, and um, uh, some of them are straight patrons, and I'm a, a LGBT queer patron. And they have a, a celebration every year, and it's conducted in one of the embassies in Bangkok. And the uh, They've had it in the British Embassy, in the Australian Embassy, in the, um, uh, the Canadian Embassy, in the Swedish Embassy. And they invite people to come from all over Asia who are leaders in the struggle for um, gay rights, for queer rights in uh, Asia. And, and also some from the Pacific Islands who come. So it's Asia and the Pacific. This is the one region of the world that doesn't have a charter of fundamental rights for the region, doesn't have a court 
to enforce those rights. So it has to be done by a process of debate, uh, example, and it really is heartrending to hear the stories of people in many of the countries uh, of Asia uh, trying to get changes in the law and trying to persuade their fellow citizens about the injustice of how they're being treated. Fortunately, the example of what has happened in the Netherlands, for example, it's not accidental that the first country in the world to provide for marriage uh, equality for uh, queer people was the Netherlands. I mean, that's a whole country full of people like my partner, Johan, difficult people who keep insisting on honesty and equality. Uh, and so the Netherlands did that in the year 2000, uh, which was about the time Ida Hobbit was established in France. And uh, we have benefited from that example in Australia. And so in Asia, having young trans people and uh, young gay and uh, lesbian and other uh, minority people who who have given example and given uh, ideas and drawing encouragement on what has happened earlier in other countries of Asia and the Pacific. Uh, this is really a marvelous thing, and and I I really congratulate uh, um, APCOM for what it does. There's another body called Kaleidoscope. Uh, this is founded in Melbourne. A lot of good things happen in Melbourne, you know. The, the, it was in Melbourne that uh, the ICANN was established. ICANN was the body, uh, the International Commission Against Nuclear Weapons, that got the Nobel Prize in 2017 and led on to the treaty, the ban treaty against nuclear weapons. All that began in Melbourne. You're very serious down there in Melbourne and you often are the first to deal with these issues. You were the first on the Federation issue in Australia. Um, I think it's because you don't have a, enough warm beaches and therefore you, you have to have other things to do and you focused on um, spiritual and, and equality issues. So uh, a kaleidoscope looks at the law. It's specific to law. And Professor Paula Gerber at uh, Monash um, does research and she's established kaleidoscope. And it wouldn't be a bad thing if one of the ap ap academics or maybe a couple of them were doing work for kaleidoscope. You don't have to be gay to do it but you just have to be concerned about equality and justice and non-discrimination. So uh, this is something where Deacon has lagged a bit behind um, and there's no reason for that. Uh, and I would encourage you to see what the faculty is doing and what the students can do to encourage the study of the injustices in the law that still affect Australians uh, and what we have to do to get rid of those injustices, including, for example, in the refugee cases, in the claims by 
young gay people who get to Australia and find suddenly they can form a loving human relationship. I mean, this is something that is existential to human beings. And uh, it would be a good thing if you could have some projects that you take up, not only on behalf of Australians, which is good, but also on behalf of uh, friends and colleagues and uh, wonderful heroes in Asia and the Pacific. And APCOM would supply all sorts of information. Look them up on the website, APCOM. They do excellent work and Kaleidoscope at Deakin does excellent work. And it's important on Idahot Day to know it's not enough to just think about these issues on one day of the year. It's important to think of them on all days of the year because that's the time that people are queer every day of the year, not just one day of the year. And so this is a reason for bringing it to the forefront of our minds and then making sure that we Australians who have many blessings are concerned about those who are much less fortunate than we are in other countries. So that's what I would encourage you to do on this Idahot day. 2021. Yeah, well, um, I love that discussion. I think that's become a really common theme in this whole kind of interview. The fact that you are queer every single day. Um, it's not just one day to celebrate and, and bring focus to it. It's an every single day thing and something we need to think about throughout our lives continuously. And um, yeah, that's all we have time for today. And with both of us, I'm sure have been really inspired by the discussion that we've heard from you and we'll take it back to our work and what we do for our law society. So we really, really thank you for joining us today and sharing your thoughts um, about the developing relationship between the LGBTQI plus community and the law in Australia. So again, thank you for giving us this real opportunity to have a chat with you um, and learn from you. We both really appreciate it and I'd really love to hear from you as well. Thank you very much, Olivia, and thank you, Dan. And always remember, nothing was ever achieved in the advancement of queer rights without full and open discussion and without the support of straight people. And we come from families, most of whom are straight, but when they understand it, they understand the injustice of discrimination and inequality. And therefore, we must reach out to people who are straight and explain things because that makes them understand. And when they understand, often, as in the case of my siblings, they become the strongest supporters of equality and justice for queer people. Thank you. And I hope we meet up at Deakin later in the year. And when we do, I'm going to be asking what the faculty is doing and what the Law Students Society are doing. And I'm going to give you a rough time if, you if you're only thinking you're th on one day of the year, 365. That's a very good point. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And make sure to tune in for the next episode of Before the Court.